The gospel reading is from Luke chapter 12. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. I um, watched a movie this week in preparation for uh, this sermon because that's just the kind of pastor I am. I'll go to any length to prepare sermons for you, no matter how challenging they might be. Uh, this week I watched uh, Rebel Without a Cause, um, and I had named the sermon Rebel Without a Cause earlier in the week, so I felt it was only appropriate for me to actually watch the movie to make sure that the title was appropriate to uh, the content of the sermon. That's the right order, right? Uh, well, Rebel Without a Cause, if you have been living under a rock uh, for the last 60-so years, is the 1955 Nicholas Ray film starring James Dean and Natalie Wood. And I thought for sure that I had seen it before. And I also thought for sure it was going to be better than it actually was. Um, James Dean is no doubt captivating. He just eats camera space. The visuals are stunning. And you see things around L.A. that have become kind of iconic and landmarks uh, due in part to this film. And it's like, oh, I, oh, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of hammy, in, especially in the dialogue and the teenage behavior that they're depicting seems like it was uh, depicted by um, sort of older white kind of squares trying to depict delinquent teenage behavior. It just doesn't quite work. However, the, the film, and I think partly this is why it's so iconic and is reserved or stored in the Library of Congress, is that it does capture that post-war angst of what do we do now? That melancholy that sort of settled. I wasn't alive then, but I hear sort of settled upon the nation that had just won the war for the world. The battle to save the world is over. So now what do we do? Is there anything more than just suburban ennui and looking as cool as James Dean and Natalie Wood no doubt did? Well, these 24-year-olds playing 17-year-old high schoolers live in this upper-middle-class existence suburban existence. LA's expanding into the hills, and they have these really large houses. James Dean has a car. It's 1955. And it's, the parents give them just about anything they want. But life at home is very disordered. It's painful. It's confusing. And James Dean, in, particularly, in particular, who plays the character Jim Stark, wants his dad to care about something, anything. He wants him to care about more than just placating his mom and keeping the peace in a loveless marriage. He wants him to snap out of his sunny disposition. He wants him to feel something. He wants him to stand for something. 
You see, Jim feels everything, feels it deeply, and he feels that he's an outsider. If only I had one day in my life where I didn't feel confused, where I felt like I belonged. Early in the movie, they take a class trip to the planetarium at Griffith Observatory, and this older uh, professor type is giving this presentation on the stars and the planets, the galaxies and distance and so forth. And he says at the end, in all the immensity of our universe and the galaxies beyond, the earth will not be missed. Through the infinite reaches of space, the problems of man seem trivial and naive indeed. And man existing alone seems himself an episode of little consequence. And then the lights come on and the students file out. Have a great day. That's at the bottom of Jim Stark's disconsolation about being a human. But what is he rebelling against? I think it sets it up. That conversation, that presentation in the planetarium, it seems like he's rebelling against an unfeeling world, a world of very safe futility, a world where marriages are loveless, but they stick together because they want to keep up appearances. He's rebelling against a mechanical world of little consequence or no consequence. Now, this is a a romantic view of the world, and not romance in terms of holiday greetings and flowers and chocolates, but romance in terms of longing for supernatural, seeing the world we inhabit infused with something transcendent, this desire to be unbounded in a material world, this desire to seek the indefinable to somehow become untrapped in the physical world. Now this, as we've been talking about the Enneagram and each of these numbers that we have reviewed, the Enneagram 4 is generally called the romantic, not because they have really good date ideas, but because they see the world askew. They they see the world differently. They want something more. They long for something beyond the mechanical world. They're romantics, and they want to be special because they want the universe to be special. They want the earth to be special. They want something more than just post-war ennui and melancholy. And so, in the fashion of fours, as Jim Stark does in Rebel Without a Cause, they push on boundaries. They push on conventions. They experiment with their own norms. And in an ironic way, they end up causing the exact sort of rejection that they deeply fear. Dean's rebellion in the form of mild, delinquent behavior, Picasso coloring outside the lines, Merton finding God outside of traditional paths. Fours don't want to just fit in. They want to do something. They want to be something unique, special. They want to give a gift to the world. They want to be special and unique and belong and fit in. They try to stand out 
while at the same time having a deeper-than-average desire to be acceptable and accepted. You see the tension? And because they see and feel things that others don't tend to, they tend to be creative. They tend to be artistic. They're the musicians that kiss the sky. They're the dreamers who dream of purple rain. They just see things differently. They're sensitive, and they can read people very well. They can grasp the mood of the room. They want to stand out aesthetically. A four would generally never wear sort of pleated khakis and a white shirt, because what's the point of being dressed if you can't express your creativity? They are going to show up in James Dean's iconic red jacket and motorcycle boots, even if they don't drive a motorcycle. And it's not just ego. It's not just, hey, look at me. It's just a desire to be special, to be unique. And it's lovely and inspiring because to most fours, everything matters, you see. Jeans matter, and our shirts matter, and our friends matter, and the kind of car we drive matters. Not because we want it with bling, it's because we want it to be different. We don't want to just drive a beige Camry, but something that's, that reflects upon our inner life. Everything must be infused with beauty, with uniqueness or meaning. And it's a wonderful way to live. It's an inspiring way to live for other people, but it's also challenging because everyday tasks then, if they're not seen to be infused with that sort of thing, can become tedious. They can become loathsome. If they're disconnected from a larger story, from something lasting, they can just be disregarded. Because why bother? Why bother with email, with changing a diaper, with all of the mundane things of life? Why does any of this matter? And you can see how that sort of kind of slips into melancholy. And so they then want to enact big, grand gestures, big projects, or maybe even a little malicious misbehavior. Kohelet, who wrote Ecclesiastes, the very, very long passage that uh, Lauren graciously read for us, he describes this sort of idea where he talks about toil, that is our daily life, the daily grind, our work. He talks about toil being for the wind, as if everything we do from the time we wake up till we go to bed is just blown into the wind. It doesn't matter. Fours understand that more than anyone because the tedium of life can be so distracting and boring. The last thing a four wants to do is to be bored, or certainly to be boring. They have a stunning drive to do something extraordinary, to transcend this human condition that we live in, that some of us ignore, that we ignore the sort of meta hardships that we all endure. We just get the job done. Well, fours don't do that. Fours may get the job done, but they see, they feel the deep distress that our world is in, and they want to do something about it. 
they have this just gnawing sense of having lost something ultimate. Now, this is Kohelet's dilemma. This is the dilemma of Ecclesiastes. He's a bit of a romantic. He senses that there should be more to life. If Yahweh is real, there, there should be meaning. There should be some lasting purpose to what I do every day. He sees the world askew, and he longs for transcendence. He wants to belong to something in a, in a cosmic sense, in a meta sense. Kohelet has this acute feeling of deprivation, of loss. Something in his heart, in his spirit, has experienced something that somehow he's lost connection with. And I think whether you're a creative, an art artist, a for or not, don't you sense that at times at least, that our desires that we have are so strong, our hopes are so big, and yet we don't seem to find a way to solve them. We don't seem to find a way to integrate them into the everyday decisions that we make. In verse 6-2, he says, Some people have wealth and possessions and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but they don't have the ability to enjoy them. They have everything. Everything that our world invests cosmic significance in, they have it, and they want more. This wanting more could be termed as greed or avarice, but with fours, and this is the beauty of them, is that what could be greed and avarice for them takes shape as this sort of holy discontentment with the way things are. They've seen all that the world offers, and they find it lacking. You see, their hearts are, are naturally misaligned with a purely material world and universe. It's very hard for fours to live in a world that's denuded of spirit, which is a gift to them. And it's a gift to us because they won't settle for that kind of world. They're attuned to the world's inability to meet their deepest longings, and therefore they're constitutionally open to movement of God. They're constitutionally open to spiritual experience so long as that pathway isn't overly scripted. But here's the challenge as well, is that Fours, and I think all of us, can get lost in that longing. They can struggle to be fully present in daily life. They're on this constant search for transcendent, and so they disattach themselves from sort of their daily duties and the daily routine, and it becomes very dissatisfying to them. Kohelet changes this almost exact wording that we read in verse 2 in now in verse 19, and he gives it a different context or a different spin, and he says, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them. Do you see it's, it's a, a gift with two aspects? 
wealth and possessions, but also the ability to enjoy it, contentment, and the ability to enjoy them. When he gives someone the ability to accept their lot, that is, accept their toil, accept daily life, and be happy, this is a gift of God. You see, it's, it's the same wealth in verse 19 that it was in verse 2. One person can't get enough. They can't find their way out of their own discontent. In verse 19, same wealth, same possessions, same lot, same toil, but they're happy. They're content. Fours, as well as you and I, we need that gift of the transition between verse 2 and verse 19, to be able to enjoy the present, to be able to sit and to be still and to recognize the world as it is and maintain that holy discontentment, understanding that it will never be enough, and yet at the same time, remembering that if God made the world and everything in it, then everything, therefore, is valuable. And that all of our little tasks can be infused with beauty and delight and even eternality. That's the tension for fours, and that's really the tension, I think, for all of this. They've achieved, you see, that they've been given this instrument of cosmic meaning, wealth. And yet they're happy at the same time in their toil and in their daily life and all of the things that are small and seemingly insignificant. Fours can give us the gift of never settling for the numbing routines of life, for the false transcendence that we seek in money and possessions and substances, but they also need to receive the gift of God, of presence, which really is a gift of daily contentment. And this comes, I think, when longing isn't abstract, when it's not just a generalized sense of displacement. I don't know where meaning is to be found, and I long for everything. That can really grow or spiral into despondency because it's just an abstraction. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I don't know where the world is going. I don't know if there's ultimate meaning beyond. And I think the key that Kohelet discovers is that turning, keeping that longing, leveraging that longing, but connecting it to something that is not abstract, that's the key to finding the solution to that displacement. You see, it's not longing simply for transcendence itself, but it's longing for the one who is transcendent the one who entered into our world with transcendence. Kohelet, his experience was that there has to be something more, but I don't know what it is. I can't find it. I don't know if I'll ever find it. And his conclusion to the whole search was that it's vaporous. It's able, which is just mist. It's vanity. The harder I strive to reach it, sparing no expense in his search, turning over every stone, the more convinced he becomes that he, he'll never find it. You see, our desires 
are beautiful and wonderful and given by God. But when they're unattached from the giver and maybe attached to something that is in itself disappointing, our appetites become appetites for destruction. When they are disconnected from an object that can bear their weight, we'll always be experimenting, always be searching, always be longing, trying everything we can, anything new. Fours look for that something in difference, in originality, in uniqueness, in standing apart from the world while at the same time longing for belonging. And it can be exhausting. Let me read you a short quote and then we'll finish. This is a, a book, a memoir <clears throat> by Leslie Jameson. She's, it's called The Recovering and it's about her work as an artist, as a writer, as a poet, moving through addiction and then into recovery. And I'm pretty confident that she's a four. And she says, my whole life I'd been taught that something was good because it was original, that singularity was the driving engine of value. It was impossible to imagine what it was to be as a person, as a story, without thinking in terms of difference. I'm loved because I'm not quite like anyone else. When it came to love, I had somewhat contradictory desires. I wanted to be loved unconditionally, simply because I was, but I also wanted to be loved for my qualities, because I was X, because I was Y. I wanted to be loved because I deserved it. Except I was scared to be loved like this, because what if I stopped deserving it? Unconditional love was insulting, but conditional love was terrifying. This was something Dave, her boyfriend at the time, and I had talked about, being loved for qualities or without conditions. He taught me the notion of love bestowed, stom, as they say in Hebrew. Love for no earthly reason, just because, because. The way to contentment is through a holy discontentment with the world as it is. It points us beyond, not to an abstraction, but beyond to something specific, to a person. And fours have this unique capacity to look beyond, to, beyond, to always be looking, that we could all learn from, from people like Jim Stark in Rebel, from Leslie Jameson, from Kohelet, that said, there's nothing new under the sun. I've looked everywhere. The search for the ultimate in a non-ultimate world is futile, is what he's saying. There's nothing so rapturous, so ecstatic that's going to capture our identity and capture our attention and our purpose that exists under the sun, that can settle our restless hearts, that can fix our cosmic displacement. And fours are sensitive to that vanity. They're troubled by it. And what a gift to be so troubled. There's nothing new under the sun, you see, but there's everlasting newness beyond the sun. And that's what you find when you read Ecclesiastes in the context of the rest of the Bible. 
that you discover a love that exists for no other reason than to be attached to you and to me. A love that's so, other, so unique that all other forms of love find their meaning in it. A love that forms our uniqueness, that creates us and tells us that we are, in fact, special, specially created and specially loved for no earthly reason, only because, only because the love of God that would come and die on our behalf to fulfill our longing, telling us that we are eternally unique and we possess eternal belonging. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the Bible. And I hope that that resonates with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would instill in us a holy discontentment, a deep longing, not for just something strange or unique, but a longing for something specific, a longing for you. And I pray that as we celebrate our uniqueness, our diversity, and how we as individuals show up in a, in a unique, in an original way. I pray that we could honor that and celebrate that and yet not be so caught up in it that we begin to draw divisions because of it, but it would draw us unto one another, that we would see the uniqueness in each other and be magnetized by it. Lord, we pray that as we come to this table, we would see the uniqueness of the gospel, the uniqueness of this table, of a God who renders himself a servant and comes to lift us up and to provide for our longings by his own death. And we pray that you would render that truth deep into our souls. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.